So this morning we're continuing with our series through the book of First Thessalonians. We started last week looking at this book. We looked just at the first three verses last week. But if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 4 to 10 this morning. Uh, just to remind you of the setting for this letter, uh, Paul had visited the city of Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. The city exists to this day. He went there on his second missionary journey, and he preached the gospel, and many people, Jews and Gentiles alike, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But very shortly on, opposition arose to this new gospel, and after just a few weeks, Paul had to leave the city in a hurry, and he was deeply concerned for this little group of new Christians. Were they going to make it? Were they going to continue in the faith? Would persecution stamp out this little church? And as soon as he could, he sent Timothy, one of his associates, to visit the church to find out how they were doing. And Timothy has just got back with his report that the church is doing fine. In fact, they're doing more than fine. Everyone in the surrounding area knows about the faith of these men and women. And Paul is overjoyed, and he sits down, and he writes this letter to them, expressing his love, expressing his joy that they're still continuing in the faith. So let's pick up on what he says in verses 4 through 10. We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us. From the coming wrath. And this is God's word. So, in these verses, Paul continues to give thanks to God for the faith of the Thessalonians. And he's particularly thankful for the way in which the word of God came to them, the way they received the word, and the way in which the word continued out uh, from them. But before Paul describes this human element of the mission to Thessalonica, uh, Paul describes the work of God behind the scenes. Because actually, the second missionary trip to Thessalonica wasn't Paul's idea. It was God's idea. Look at how Paul begins this section in verse 4. He says, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, this is an interesting idea, the idea of God's choice of us. It's found in both uh, the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, God's choice was of a particular people, uh, the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, it's God's choice of men and women, boys and girls, young people 
to be God's children. Now, I need to be completely honest with you this morning and say I don't fully understand how all of this works. And the best that I can do is to hold two seemingly contradictory beliefs in my mind at the same time. That I choose God, and yet in all eternity, God chooses me. But actually, much of the Christian faith involves holding contradictory ideas at the same time. So I have to hold in my mind the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. I have to hold in my mind that God's word is entirely the work of men and women and entirely the word of God. And now I have to hold that becoming a Christian involves me freely choosing God and at the same time God choosing me. And you can actually see that dual choosing in in this passage because in verse 9 Paul says, you turned to God from idols... And yet in verse 4, he says, he has chosen you. Somehow I have to live with both of these ideas at the same time. And because it's difficult to understand, the temptation is just to skip that verse and and hope that none of you notice. Uh, But but I don't want to do that. I I want to draw out just a a few things that I think are important for us uh, that will give us hope and encouragement. And notice firstly that Paul specifically says that God has chosen us in love. He says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. When my daughter Karen was two years old, she looked around at all of the various toys in her room, uh, and she chose one of those toys, a stuffed puppy, appropriately now named Puppy, uh, to be her special possession out of all of the toys. <laughs> Uh, She's now 17, and puppy still goes to sleep with her every night in bed. And I'm going to have to pay her 10 rand now, because I have to pay 10 rand every time I use my children as a sermon illustration. I can't tell you the hours collectively as a family we've spent, uh, particularly when she was younger, looking for puppy. There was one fateful evening when puppy fell out of the pram while we were walking around Kimberley and we had to get in the car with our big lights on and carefully retrace our route until finally, thankfully, we found puppy. Puppy's stuffing is mostly gone. Much of his hair has gone. He has patches on him where one day he fell on the stove. He has no monetary value whatsoever. We probably couldn't even give him away to U-turn. But I know for a fact (laughs) that if our house ever caught on fire, Kevin would run into the burning house and grab Puppy and bring him out. And in a similar way, God has chosen us this morning, not because we're better than other people, not because our sins are less than others, not because we're beautiful or intelligent or wise, although, of course, all of you are, Not because of those things, but simply because of his love for us. Let's just draw out a couple of implications of that. John Stott mentions these in his commentary on the book of 1 Thessalonians. He says the fact that God has chosen us in love should give us assurance, not presumption. What it means is that my salvation, my rightness with God doesn't hang on something as flimsy as me choosing God, but rather on his choosing me. And in those long, sad, dark nights, when I lie awake and I worry, 
Or when the devil comes to me and says, how can you be a Christian? You call yourself a Christian. Does God really love you? At those times, I have the assurance that my salvation doesn't depend on me choosing God, but on God choosing me. Secondly, the fact that God has chosen us should promote humility and not pride. Because God has to choose us, because in our natural selves we're sinful and wayward and reject God. John chapter 15, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Sometimes we're tempted to think that God's actually got quite a good candidate in us, that we're better than other people, (laughs) but we're not to be proud. I have to humbly accept that left to my own devices, I would leave God, and yet he has chosen me and keeps me. Thirdly, God's choosing me should produce holiness and not moral apathy. I belong to God. You belong to God. You are his precious possession. And so I can't do whatever I want, mindlessly be swept along by life. I need to give myself to him. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, and he says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And fourthly, God's choosing me should produce witness and not lazy selfishness. Some, some people say now, well, if God chooses people for salvation, then what is the point of preaching? Well, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul explains. He says, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, God calls, God chooses through the preaching of the gospel. And so evangelism is essential because it's through the preaching of the gospel that God calls men and women to himself. That's quite a lot for us, so early on a Sunday morning. But putting all of that together, we can say that that Paul's mission to the city of Thessalonica was actually God's mission to the city of Thessalonica. And if evangelism is the work of God, then the most important thing we can do is to pray. Now, we've got an Alpha course coming up in just a few weeks' time, and I want to urge us to pray, to pray for the leaders, to pray for the people who'd come along, and to pray and to ask God, Lord, who can I invite to come along to the Alpha course? God has chosen us in love But Paul moves on then, and he speaks about how he knows the Thessalonians have been chosen by God. And the reasons he knows all revolve around the gospel. He speaks about how the gospel came to them, how they received it, and how they passed it on. And we're going to look at those each in turn. Paul says in verses 4 and 5, We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. So Paul looks back and he remembers preaching and teaching in the city of Thessalonica, and he remembers how the gospel message came to them. And there were a couple of features of the gospel message. 
He says the gospel came not simply with words. Of course, words were used. The gospel message contains words. In fact, often uh, the New Testament writers describe the gospel as the word of God or the word of the Lord or often simply the word, those who believed the word. And God has recorded the content of this word in the scriptures for us. And so this book, the Bible, is the most important book in the world because nowhere else can we find the content of the gospel. And it's worth reading then and studying and meditating upon. Paul also says, Our our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Some people think that that refers to the miracles that Paul performed in the city of Thessalonica. We don't actually read of any miracles in Acts 16 where this mission is mentioned. That doesn't mean to say there weren't miracles, but I think the point is that Paul is speaking about the power of the gospel itself. Miracles are important, but the gospel itself is powerful. That's why with our modern gadgets and our technology, we still preach God's word in our churches because it's powerful. And when we preach it and we pray it and we sing it and we memorize it, it's got great power. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. No no other gospel can cure drug addiction and alcohol abuse. No other message can change a family. No other gospel can move from sin to righteousness. It's powerful. J.B. Phillips was a Bible scholar who wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament many years ago. And after he completed the project, someone asked him what it was like to rewrite the Bible in modern language. And he said it was like trying to rewire a house with the electricity turned on. The gospel comes with power. Thirdly, Paul says the word of God came with deep conviction. And some of us know that as well. You sit in church for years and suddenly it all makes sense and you're deeply convicted. And Paul says, and with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is involved in all of these other elements. It's the Holy Spirit who gives the word, the Holy Spirit that gives the power, the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. And Paul says then we know that God has called you because we remember the way in which God's word came to you. Secondly, Paul says we know that God has chosen you in love because of how you welcomed the message. Verse 6. For you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, Paul explains in detail exactly what had happened in the lives of these men and women, particularly in the lives of Gentiles. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. And that, in a nutshell, is what it means to become a Christian. And this is quite important, because if you wanted to welcome the message for yourself this morning, these are the steps you'd need to take. Or if we have a family member or a friend or a neighbor who is yet to be a Christian, these are the steps we would need to outline for them. Paul says, You turned to God 
from idols. I guess that the technical term for that is repentance. Repentance means making a 180-degree turn, that instead of going in this direction and doing these things, I turn around and go in the opposite direction and do the opposite things. The Thessalonians had turned from idols. In one of his books, Tom Wright describes what this would have looked like for the Thessalonians. It was a a huge shift in their lives. He says, turning from idols was simply unheard of in Paul's world. It would be like asking people in modern cities to give up using motor cars, computers, and telephones. The gods of Greek and Roman paganism were everywhere. If you were going to plant a tree, you would pray to the relevant god. If you were going on a business trip, a quick visit to the appropriate shrine was in order. If you or your son or daughter was getting married, serious and costly worship of the relevant deity was expected. At every turn in the road, the gods were there, unpredictable, possibly malevolent, sometimes at war among themselves, so you could never do too much in the way of placating them, making sure you'd got them on your side. The Thessalonians had this radical change of life then, in that they turned from the idols. But this repentance is is no less radical in our own lives. The gospel is to radically change how we think and how we act. Because we too serve idols. Not metal idols any longer, but mental idols. The idols of pleasure, money, power. And all of us serve an idol. I worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. So we have to turn away, but then there's a turning towards. Paul says to serve the living and true God. The living God as opposed to idols that are dead. The true God as opposed to idols that are false. And God calls us to turn from idols to to serve him, literally to serve as a slave, which sounds very terrible until until you realize that all of us are enslaved to something. All of us are going to serve something. We can either serve ourselves or we can serve the living God. The atheist turned Christian, Malcolm Muggridge, put it this way, He says, in in the dark little dungeon of our own ego, we are prisoners of our self-centeredness, prisoners of our guilt, prisoners of the wrath of God that is upon us because of our inexcusable guilt. And that's what Paul goes on to describe in this passage too. He speaks about the Thessalonians eagerly awaiting for God's Son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Because the idolatry and the selfishness of human beings leads them to do the most appalling things. And we read about those things every day in our newspapers. And because of these things, God's wrath is coming. And in our world today, people tend to emphasize the love of God and not the wrath of God. But the love of God and the wrath of God are complementary. They're not contradictory. God loves us, and he hates the sin that does so much damage to us. 
No, if God could look at the terrible things that go on in our world, if God could look at the newspaper headlines that you and I look at and, and the human stories behind that, if God could look at that and not get angry, God would not be a loving God. He would be a monster or something worse. God hates our sin. And his wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil his settled refusal to compromise with it, his resolve instead to condemn it. Which sounds marvelous when we think about those evil people out there, but not so good when we recognize that we ourselves are evil. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote these words in his book, The Gulag Archipelago. He said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. You and I would be swept away by God's coming wrath if it were not for the fact that Jesus has rescued us. And how did he rescue us? By taking God's wrath upon himself on the cross, that he dies for our sin. And the resurrection then is God's given proof of what Jesus did on the cross. All of that is what it means to welcome the message but you know, this, this turning from idols to serve the living God, this living in expectancy of Christ's coming, isn't something that just happens to us once in the past. It's a continual task for us as Christians. Uh, Paul speaks about this in Colossians chapter 3. It's a chapter I've grown to love over the last few weeks. Bernadette put it up in the prayer room, and so it's really stuck with me. But, but have a look quickly. Paul says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There's the expectancy. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's the turning from idols. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. There's God's wrath again. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's turning to God. So everything we've been speaking about here isn't just something that happens in the past. Of course, there is a moment that happens in the past where we move from death to life, from darkness to light, from being God's enemies to being his sons and daughters. But after that, this is a continual daily part of our Christian discipleship, turning from idols to the living God. And that's what these Thessalonians did. As Tom Wright puts it in his commentary, people in Thessalonica, knowing from the start the risk they would be taking, turned away from their idols to the living God and discovered at the same moment suffering and joy. We don't have time to look at these headings individually, but if we're following Jesus, if we're doing it right, we will suffer. We'll face opposition. We'll face the difficulty of putting sin to death in our own lives but we will also find that there is no greater joy, no greater life. We looked at a lot of things under this heading, but Paul says we know that God has chosen you in love because of the way in which you welcomed the message. Do we welcome this message? 
And thirdly, Paul says, well, we know that God has chosen you in love because of how the Lord's message rang out from you. Verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. In fact, Paul says, we don't need to tell other people about your faith. Other people tell us. Verse 8. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So there's a, there's a marvelous progression in these verses, which you've probably seen from the outline. But Paul says, our gospel came to you, you welcomed the message, and the Lord's message rang out from you. Uh, those words rang out, I think, suggest an audible sharing of the gospel, that the Thessalonians told other people about the gospel. And just ordinary Christians down through the centuries have continued to gossip the gospel, which is why you and I are here this morning, because somebody shared it with us. Uh, This week I was reading about a man who uh, described his son coming home from the movies, and he said that as his son came into the room, uh, he asked him the question, so how was the movie? But uh, he said that as he was asking that question, he already knew the answer that the movie was okay, but not great. He said, how did I know the answer? He said, I knew the answer because if the movie had been fantastic, as he came in the room, he would have told me all about it and everything that was involved. The fact that I had to ask the question showed that it wasn't such a great movie. And I think here is a diagnostic tool for my spiritual life, that if Jesus has made and is making a difference in my life, I won't not be able to tell others. It'll come naturally. But there's a second way in which the gospel is shared too, and that's through the testimony of a changed life. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says, You know how we lived among you. You then became imitators of us and of the Lord, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He says, you became imitators of the Lord. And that's what Christian discipleship means. It means looking at the life of Jesus and trying to follow him. We can't copy Jesus' life. Only Jesus could live that life. But we're called to act as Jesus would act if he were in our place, if he were in our family, if he were in our neighborhood. Pastor John Ortberg puts it this way in one of his books. He says, we're called by God to live as our uniquely created selves, our temperament, our gene pool, our history. But to grow spiritually means to live increasingly as Jesus would in our unique place, to perceive what Jesus would perceive if he looked through our eyes, to think what he would think, to feel what he would feel, and therefore to do what he would do. And when we do that, we become models to other believers too. One of the things that I love about our church is how young people move from being members of the youth group and members of the Sunday school to being leaders of the youth group and leaders of the Sunday school. Uh, When we first arrived uh, here in Pinelands, uh, our children went as uh, attendees to the Holiday Bible Club, and this year both of them were leaders at the Holiday Bible Club. 
I love the way in which uh, uh, both Annie and Candice and Cindy, uh, they always make sure that for the young people, there is someone above them that they are looking up to, and then in turn they become people that others look up to as well. And that's the pattern here. But what about us? Are we following Jesus so closely that we become a model to others of what discipleship looks like? Sure, so we've looked at an awful lot in these verses. But just to recap as we close, you know, if we know and love Jesus this morning, then we have the assurance and the reassurance that he has chosen us in love. It's worth reminding ourselves of how the good news came to us, how it came powerfully with deep conviction with the Holy Spirit. We need to ask the question, have we welcomed the message? Have we turned from idols to the living God? Do we wait for Jesus, his son, who rescues us from the coming wrath? And is this welcoming of the message part of our daily Christian walk? And then thirdly, and very importantly for us, does this message ring out from our congregation into Pinelands, into Cape Town, to the ends of the earth? Who am I modeling the Christian life to? Uh, Who am I speaking to about Jesus? Uh, Who am I going to invite to the Alpha Course in a few weeks' time?